Preface of Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town by Stephen Leacock. Preface. I know no way in which a writer may more fittingly introduce his work to the public than by giving a brief account of who and what he is. By this means, some of the blame for what he has done is very properly shifted to the extenuating circumstances of his life. I was born at Swanmoor, Hans, England, on December 30th, 1869. I am not aware that there was any particular conjunction of the planets at that time, but should think it extremely likely. My parents migrated to Canada in 1876, and I decided to go with them. My father took up a farm near Lake Simcoe in Ontario. This was during the hard times of Canadian farming, and my father was just able, by great diligence, to pay the hired men and, in years of plenty, to raise enough grain to have seed for the next year's crop without buying any. By this process, my brothers and I were inevitably driven off the land and have become professors, businessmen, and engineers instead of being able to grow up as farm laborers. Yet, I saw enough of farming to speak exuberantly in political addresses of the joy of early rising and the deep sleep both of body and intellect that is induced by honest manual toil. I was educated at Upper Canada College, Toronto, of which I was head boy in 1887. From there, I went to the University of Toronto, where I graduated in 1891. At the university, I spent my entire time in the acquisition of languages, living dead and half-dead, and knew nothing of the outside world. In this diligent pursuit of words, I spent about 16 hours of each day. Very soon after graduation, I had forgotten the languages, and found myself intellectually bankrupt. In other words, I was what is called a distinguished graduate, and as such I took to school teaching as the only trade I could find that need neither experience nor intellect. I spent my time from 1891 to 1899 on the staff of Upper Canada College, an experience which has left me with a profound sympathy for the many gifted and brilliant men who are compelled to spend their lives in the most dreary, the most thankless, and the worst paid profession in the world. I have noted that of my pupils, those who seem the laziest and the least enamored of books are now rising to eminence at the bar, in business, and in public life. The really promising boys, who took all the prizes, are now able with difficulty to earn the wages of a clerk in a summer hotel or a deckhand on a canal boat. In 1899, I gave up school teaching in disgust, borrowing enough money to live upon for a few months, and went to the University of Chicago to study economics and political science. I was soon appointed to a fellowship in political economy, and by means of this and some temporary employment by McGill University, I survived until I took the degree of Doctor of Philosophy in 1903. The meaning of this degree is that the recipient of instruction is examined for the last time in his life, and is pronounced completely full. After this, no new ideas can be imparted to him. From this time and since my marriage, which had occurred at this period, 
I have belonged to the staff of McGill University, first as lecturer in political science and later as head of the Department of Economics and Political Science. As this position is one of the prizes of my profession, I am able to regard myself as singularly fortunate. The emolument is so high as to place me distinctly above the policemen, postmen, streetcar conductors, and other salaried officials of the neighborhood, while I am able to mix with the poorer of the businessmen of the city on terms of something like equality. In point of leisure, I enjoy more in the four corners of a single year than a businessman knows in his whole life. I thus have what the businessman can never enjoy, an ability to think, and, what is still better, to stop thinking altogether for months at a time. I have written a number of things in connection with my college life, a book on political science, and many essays, magazine articles, and so on. I belong to the Political Science Association of America, to the Royal Colonial Institute, and to the Church of England. These things surely are a proof of respectability. I have had some small connection with politics and public life. A few years ago, I went all around the British Empire delivering addresses on imperial organization. When I state that these lectures were followed almost immediately by the Union of South Africa, the banana riots in Trinidad, and the Turco-Italian War, I think the reader can form some idea of their importance. In Canada, I belong to the Conservative Party, but as yet I have failed entirely in Canadian politics, never having received a contract to build a bridge or make a wharf, nor to construct even the smallest section of the transcontinental railway. This, however, is a form of national ingratitude to which one becomes accustomed in this dominion. Apart from my college work, I have written two books, one called Literary Lapses and the other Nonsense Novels. Each of these is published by John Lane, London and New York, and either of them can be obtained, absurd though it sounds, for the mere sum of three shillings and sixpence. Any reader of this preface, for example, ridiculous though it appears, could walk into a bookstore and buy both of these books for seven shillings. Yet these works are of so humorous a character that for many years it was found impossible to print them. The compositors fell back from their task, suffocated with laughter and gasping for air. Nothing but the intervention of the linotype machine, or rather of the kind of men who operate it, made it possible to print these books. Even now, people have to be very careful in circulating them, and the books should never be put in the hands of persons not in robust health. Many of my friends are under the impression that I write these humorous nothings in idle moments, when the wearied brain is unable to perform the serious labors of the economist. My own experience is exactly the other way. The writing of solid, instructive stuff, fortified by facts and figures, is easy enough. There is no trouble in writing a scientific treatise on the folklore of central China or a statistical inquiry into the declining population of Prince Edward Island. But to write something out of one's own mind, worth reading for its own sake, is an arduous contrivance, only to be achieved in fortunate moments, few and far between. Personally, I would sooner have written Alice in Wonderland than the whole Encyclopedia Britannica. In regard to the present work, I must disclaim at once all intentions of trying to do anything so ridiculously easy as writing about a real place 
and real people. Mariposa is not a real town. On the contrary, it is about 70 or 80 of them. You may find them all the way from Lake Superior to the sea, with the same square streets and the same maple trees and the same churches and hotels and everywhere the sunshine of the land of hope. Similarly, the Reverend Mr. Drone is not one person, but about eight or ten. To make him, I clapped the gaiters of one ecclesiastic round the legs of another, added the sermons of a third and the character of a fourth, and so let him start on his way in the book to pick up such individual attributes as he might find for himself. Mullins and Bagshaw and Judge Pepperley and the rest are, it is true, personal friends of mine. But I have known them in such a variety of forms, with such alternations of tall and short, dark and fair, that individually I should have much ado to know them. Mr. Pupkin is found whenever a Canadian bank opens a branch in a county town and needs a teller. As for Mr. Smith, with his 280 pounds, his hoarse voice, his loud check suit, his diamonds, the roughness of his address, and the goodness of his heart, all of this is known by everybody to be a necessary and universal adjunct of the hotel business. The inspiration of the book, A Land of Hope and Sunshine, where little towns spread their square streets and their trim maple trees beside placid lakes, almost within echo of the primeval forest, is large enough. If it fails in its portrayal of the scenes in the country that it depicts, the fault lies rather with an art that is deficient than in an affection that is wanting. Stephen Leacock, McGill University, June 1912. End of Preface